This time on Behind the Scenes, we're in the company of a former BBC television channel controller. For seven years, Kay Benbow was the executive at the heart and helm of the multi-award winning preschool children's network CBBS. In that time, she navigated the channel through dramatic shakeups within the BBC, changes in viewer habits, and into the new highly competitive digital age. Under Kay's leadership as controller, CBBS broadens its mission to entertain and educate by introducing preschool children to more dramas, more comedies, quiz shows, factual entertainment, and importantly, the arts with a CBBS classical music prom. And she also set up a partnership with the Royal Shakespeare Company to create a preschool adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. The Furchester Hotel, Topsy and Tim, The Adventures of Abney and Teal, Old Jack's Boat and Swashbuckle were all successful long-running hits greenlit by Kay, along with the much-publicised revival of Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman's timeless classic, The Clangers, which went on to win international acclaim and the Best Preschool Animation Award at the 2015 BAFTAs. Since leaving the BBC, Kay has now become a much sought-after consultant and specialist in children's media. She's also a script editor and arguably Arsenal Football Club's most ardent fan. So let's say hello to the creative powerhouse that is Kay Benbow. Hello, Kay. Hello, Colin. How are you? Well, I'm all right, really, and it's I'm, I'm very flattered because I've not had a channel controller on, on the behind-the-scenes podcast before. Well, it's lovely to talk to you and we know each other well, so it's all fine. And also, you know, as a channel controller, it's about working as part of a team. And I had wonderful, wonderful people working with me, supporting with me, helping me to achieve what I thought was the right thing to do for the audience. Because for me, it's always about the audience. That's the most important thing. The very youngest viewers, to my mind, deserve the very best. And that was my mantra. And I think... By the time I left the job, I think everybody understood that. It's always nice when you leave a job kind of better than you got it. I think as a team, you know, everybody who worked with me, we achieved some amazing things and things that we hadn't even considered when I took the job on. Um, so, yes, I, I, I'm very, very proud of the, the seven years I spent there. And I just hope that... Um, in the future, children will remember things that they saw on CBeebies and will remember it with fondness and with love. And and I hope it inspired them to do things, achieve things, think I can do that. That's that's what it's about. That's the most important thing. I'm going to endorse that later on because I've got a few examples I want to throw at you of, of how okay. children's television influenced me. God, I'm, and I'm talking the late 50s, mm -hmm. 60s. I still remember this stuff, so I'll come to that. But I want to talk about Clangers, okay. or The Clangers, as it's sometimes known. Um, that was a huge hit back in the day, inverted commas. Mm -hmm. How big a gamble was it to actually bring it back? Well, it was a gamble because at the time... The, the the team that I worked with who helped me on the animation side of things, we did feel that what we wanted to do was new, very much support the British um, animation industry. And so we didn't, at the time, we didn't really think bringing things back, you know, resurrecting things was necessarily a, the best thing to do. However, I did love the Clangers as a child. Absolutely <laughs> loved it. And uh, the, the company that made it came to pitch to me and it was just just two people who I'd known quite a long time in the industry and they put this amazing pitch document beautiful booklet with gorgeous pictures in front of me talked me through it and I just thought oh I love this this is really lovely and I said the thing is you're going to tell me this is CGI you know which is you know a different style of animation from the stop motion of the original and they said ah and then they reached down and put this box on the table lifted the lid off and there was this beautiful maquette of Major Clanger. Wow. And they said, oh, no, we're doing this stop motion. And I was kind of sold. So I just thought, OK. And it was an absolute joy. Um, it was made up in Manchester, 
where the uh, department was based at the time. So I was able to go and see the sets and see it all happen. And then uh, one of the utter joys was securing Michael Palin as the narrator. And I I had a, an email and somebody came to see me and said, oh, they've they've asked a few people. Um, or they've, no, they've got a list of a few people. Uh, top of the list is Michael Palin. And I went, oh, he was always my favourite. Mm. Absolutely wonderful man. And um, they said, we're, we're going to contact him first, if that's okay with you. And I said, absolutely, please do. Half an hour later, he'd said yes. So he um, was just wonderful. And I, for me, the perfect voice with that element of humour, but gentleness and and kindness, which is what the Clangers is about. It's mm. about being kind. It's about looking after your family, your planet. So, yes, Clangers for me was fantastic. Isn't it good when they come back so quickly? None of that, oh, I'll go and think about it. It's all... Apparently, again, I think he he really loved the the series, so um, uh, uh, the original. So he said absolutely. And then what's lovely is that when I, I mean, I know we'll probably come to this later, but when I did leave the job and I was working out what to do next, the first, I suppose, real opportunity that came my way was that the same company said, uh, you know, I don't suppose you'd be interested in script editing, Clangers, would you? You know the series, obviously you commissioned it. Our current script editor's got another project he needs to go on to, and we'd just love it if you'd come on board. And it was like, oh, well, why wouldn't I? Yeah. So that was my sort of first role when I... So there was a lovely sort of full circle. Yeah. I, it's interesting coming from with me writing hat on. I used to do a bit of typing, as you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. for a living. Uh, with a script for the Clangers then... How do you write? Okay. So somebody did say to me, oh, script editor on the clangers. Well, surely there isn't a script. They just make noises, don't they, and move about. <laughs> and I went, oh, no. The reason it works is because, you know, as you say, you know, it, there's a whole world. And it was all drawn out. And the wonderful Peter Furman was still alive then. And he did. He We had the drawing of the world. So it was very clear where the clangers were going to and from, which, again, you may not know why, but it's that logic that means it works as a viewer. Mm. Every script, the, the the dialogue was written and then it was translated and whistled afterwards. <laughs> so so it was absolutely. You know, and, and then so the, 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 that was all done to the. The guide, you know, so there's a guide vocals, and then Michael Palin would come in and and do the narration to the visuals and and the the guide whistling, as it were, and and each one there were different tones of whistles, and and it was just beautifully done. But that's why it works because yeah. actually they were whistling real words. Yeah, yeah, I just um, love the idea so, of yeah. of you in your capacity turning. Uh, written english into clangor speak it just makes well me i have laugh. to say it wasn't me it was the wonderful team i mean obviously that the script was there and, and and the plot has to hold together and there has to be a logic to it and the characters have to be developed but when all that's done then yes it then mm. got whistled as it were <laughs> <laughs> so when someone comes along with a project like clangers <laughs> What's your criteria for saying, yeah, this one's this one's going to fly? Do you go oh. on instinct or experience or is there, is there a little bell which rings in your head saying, no, this turkey ain't going to fly? I think it's a combination of things. So one of the things that I felt I needed to do was at least guide the in-house team and the, you know, the independent sector and say what I wanted to achieve with CBBs. And so we would have briefing sessions a couple of times a year. So pe and people would talk to me and ask what I wanted. So in a way, my job, along with wonderful support from team members, um, exec you know, uh, commissioning execs and, and so forth, we would think about what was needed, what what was relevant to, to the audience. And it was always about developing and, and pushing the boundaries, I think. So um it's it was looking what could we do and i always had this ambition to make cbb's 
a bit of a microcosm of the wider BBC, you know, with all genres. Why shouldn't the youngest audience have everything, observational documentaries, dramas, comedy, quiz shows, game shows, um, factual programmes, entertainment programmes? And I think it was always about finding something that would resonate with the audience that they could relate to. Having something where uh, uh, every child in the country would be able to see themselves reflected back in something in our portfolio somewhere that they could think, well, that's me. That reflects me. So obviously, diversity, inclusion, just making sure that every community, culture, ability was reflected was really, really important. And so over the, the period, we did say, well, we wanted drama. We wanted game shows. We wanted observational documentaries, which had never been done before for very young children. So we had series like Our Family, which looked at different families across the country, all types of families. Um, a Time for School, where it showed children navigating school for the first time. as, And that was quite supportive for the parents as well. Then obviously, you know, I remember standing up at the there's an annual conference every year called the Children's Media Conference that takes place in Sheffield. And I remember standing up and saying, you know, I'd really love to have some dramas for the, the preschool audience. And several people said to me, well, your budgets are quite small. You know, how on earth are you going to make it happen? And I said, well, look, that's partly up to you. You've got to come up and be creative and think how we might be able to do it. And you know, within a year, 18 months, I'd commissioned Katie Morag from a Scottish indie um, based on the Katie Morag books mm. and then Topsy and Tim live action. And there it was just and, and another series, Jamila and Aladdin. And, and then to be fair, we'd already got old Jack's boat in, 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 in production. So I think we did pretty well in terms of getting that going. And now it's, you know, it's something that people don't think about. So I think it's always about what can you offer that will open up the world to the youngest audience, inspire them, ignite their curiosity, support their development to help them become curious, hmm. resilient, and above all, happy children. And of course, during your tenure, in those seven years between 2010, 2017, Enormous changes going on in within the fabric of society uh, mm -hmm. and technology. Mm -hmm. And in your capacity as controller, you, you kind of got to keep a, across all of that, haven't you? This constant changing landscape. Yes. And inevitably, the audience are often ahead of where you are because you commission programs and they take a while to make. I mean, and for example, when I took over the job, I mean, it was very much, you know, there's the channel and that's where you watch it between this hour and this hour. And we had a website and people would occasionally write in. And 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 in the time I was there, you know, apps became a thing. Uh, so I remember very clearly being sent the the sort of early version of the CBeebies Playtime app. And you just think, oh, wow, this is amazing. This this just broadens the child's experience of, of all, you know, these shows so that you get to know the characters and then you can go and play a game with them. Um, and obviously, the, the you know, the the increase in importance of the iPlayer. Mm. So we we started doing a few shows, you know, maybe trialing things at quite small, um, sorry, uh, short durations. Uh, so maybe you'd run something at five minutes and then you put it on the iPlayer, see how it did. And then you could work out whether it would work, what the response was. And actually, that was quite sensible because... <laughs> In terms of making your money work, your budget work, you could see and then think, okay, well, this has done really well. So get a bit of feedback from the audience. We we did at the time have people who went out and chatted to children in schools or in small groups so that we could get proper verbatim feedback um, from the audience and also watch them watching, which is incredibly informative. And then you could work out, well, yes, okay, I'm going to invest a bit more in this series because it is serving its purpose. Mm. I, I think it's fascinating. You've, you, so you had to be nimble all the time, didn't you? And you had to be across everything. And I, I, I speak as a, 
a technophobe. The fact that we're talking now and this podcast has been running for nearly 70 episodes now is a miracle to other people, namely Mark Edmonds, because I'm, I have no, I can't keep abreast of, of technology. And, and in your particular position, how you, I know you had advisors and i had really good support from brilliant people <laughs> who knew a lot more than i did and i think if you ask my two sons they'd say oh mum despair of you but you know it was about working out how how the audience wanted to access and consume the content i mean that sounds a bit jargony but mm. you know it, it we had to think about it and so yes i absolutely did rely on people who really knew their stuff and yeah. and helped create what we needed to open another way for the audience to to come to the the content and, and yeah, enjoy but, it sure i enjoy it absolutely which is the, the the whole object of the exercise but ultimately the buck as the controller yeah. stopped with you so really you had to rely on your own judgment yeah and i think the other thing was you know that the the sort of incredible expansion of social media which meant that people could get in touch or make comments and and getting a handle on that was really quite challenging because wow. people would just you know suddenly there'd be a thing that if somebody didn't or you know parents didn't like it or somebody felt something was wrong it would suddenly be out there and so we had to really think about how we managed that and initially it was it was a bit scary because something could blow up and you'd think oh my goodness this will be out there in the press hmm. and then i think as to, and, and i think there's always that danger but as time went on, we realised it was a way of communicating with the parents. So we had an episode of Topsy and Tim where the dog died. And that was really, you know, and, and we wanted to tackle it because we think it's important that if it's done appropriately, any subject can be tackled on CBeebies mm. at the time anyway. And I think that's still the case. But what we did was we we started a dialogue so that parents were aware and so you didn't get that sort of, oh, I wish we'd known. So we knew mm. that they appreciated that. And then it became, you know, a way of, of of talking to parents. And I think that was appreciated. But also it became a bit more playful. So I think the moment where the team that were responsible for the social media, particularly with the grown-ups on CBeebies, we... We'd been asked, I think, well, I think it was around Mother's Day. There was a request. People loved the bedtime stories and the and the fantastic people that we got on there. And somebody had mentioned Tom Hardy. Anyway, behind the scenes, again, wonderful people who worked with me had managed to get him to say yes. And so the 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 piece on social media on New Year's Eve was uh, or ahead of New Year's Eve when he he read the first um, or the first one he did was being transmitted. It just said Tom Hardy, New Year's Eve. You're welcome. And oh. it was just, it went berserk and it was so positive. It was lovely. And and so I think you've got to, you've got to try and take the positives. But yeah, the social media side of things was a real challenge, certainly initially. One of the things brilliant, though, is the fact that you could attract Michael Palin and Tom Hardy and indeed Bernard Gribbins. Mm -hmm. That fantastic series. Yeah. There was never, ever, was there any performer saying oh it's only kids tv they really well, embraced it didn't they most did yeah i mean i think it was always about if you if you could say to them this is for your you know think about this as being for your children or your grandchildren most of them were up for it and i think also by then cbb's had become so loved i mean you know it, it was so loved at the time by parents and families that I think there was a, yes, absolutely, I'll do that. Sometimes it didn't work because of schedules or people had to drop out and not through any fault of their own. But but on the whole, most most people were very happy to do it, really understood what it was about um, and and understood there weren't megabucks in, in mm. the fees. That's the important Because <laughs> there yeah, certainly they, weren't. They weren't necessarily doing it for the money. No. I, I mentioned old Jack's boat and Bernard mm. Cribbins. That was fabulous, wasn't it? 
it was a real joy. Um, it was a lovely series made up in Staithes um, on the coast and just a joy and a delight. And it was originally created by two of our presenters, Chris Jarvis and Poi Fan Lee. And Chris had got to know Bernard, I think, in doing Panto. I think I'd have to, I should have checked. Sorry, uh, I should check with Chris, but I think it was they met. Anyway, they knew each other. And Chris Jarvis takes the credit for um, persuading Bernard to do it. But, oh, my goodness, can you imagine as somebody who used to listen to him on the radio when I was a child? Because mm. um, I'm not young. Um, you know, I used to listen to him doing Right Said Fred, Holding the Road, um, Holding the Ground. And yeah. I couldn't believe it. And he said yes. And to get to meet him was just so delightful. And he was a wonderfully warm person. Got to know his wife, Jill, as well, because... She came to a lot of the um, sessions and, and the screenings. And Bernard knew everybody, could tell you stories about everything he'd ever done. And he you could just sit there at, and just listen to him for hours. But he was an incredibly kind and caring soul. And at the time that um, we were in production with one of the series... I'd actually had some time off because I'd had breast cancer. So I'd been away for treatment. And one of the first things I did when I came back was go and visit them on set, the studio. And somebody must have mentioned it to Bernard. And we went, he said, oh, I'd love a little chat with you. And he just came and he said, I know you've not been very well. How, how, how are you doing? And, and he sort of explained he'd had a brush with cancer as well. And every time he saw me after that, he would always say, how are you? How's your health? And we did stay in touch, actually. Um, and I spoke to him only a couple of weeks before he died, and um, he was very special. This the most incredible human being. He really, really was, and he would he would ring me up out of the blue and go, "I can't do the voice, absolutely can't." But it would be, <laughs> "Hello, Bernard here. How are you?" You know, and he was just lovely and wanted to know about the family and how I was doing and what was happening and yes we we stayed in touch we saw each other but mostly mostly over the phone because he he did get quite frail towards the end but he the last time we spoke he was so so happy mm. about being in doctor who ah. absolutely over the moon about that and i said yes and it's going to be wonderful that he will be in that episode of doctor who and of course he was he was really wonderful about getting in touch with russell t davis because we had a fantastic christmas episode which nobody can watch without crying ah, it's just so brilliant it's a bit yeah. like in that fun the episode where you last see him in you know um as wolf in um uh doctor who mm -hmm. it just reduced everybody to tears we showed a clip at the departmental meeting and and it was just amazing but that episode russell wrote it and um just was very very generous with his time but russell because he started one of the things he did early on was children's programs he's a massive massive supporter of children's he adored bernard as well and so he said yeah he'd write he'd write that episode and of course it did go on to win a bafta so got lovely lovely photos of bernard with the bafta on that night yeah fantastic achievement yeah, russell of course i think he was involved in children's ward up at, up at granada when he first started so yeah yeah, yeah. but um, um so yeah, that was that was an absolute joy and uh, a delight. Yeah, it was one of those moments when when you heard that that Bernard had died. It was one of the mm. what I said to Lynn Bowles a couple of weeks ago. It's one of those yeah. look at the radio moments, and you go, oh, you know, when you hear Paul O'Grady's gone, you go, oh, I know. You know, the word national treasures bandied about with. <laughs> <laughs> with but, gay abandon but yeah, he was he could, wasn't he? he could do anything and you look back and you look at some of the things he did he could sing he could dance his timing was impeccable he was you know he was in an alfred i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but he was in an mm. alfred hitchcock film you know he was just the consummate professional but unbelievably talented and skilled and yeah i adored him i, yeah. I just yeah, great. We guy. shall not see his like again. No, no. So your job as a controller, uh, you are making decisions on what programs you think are going to work. What does my audience want? But also, there's some person management involved, and you're also juggling these balls in the air: radio, internety stuff, television programs. Mm -hmm. This entire channel. I'm, uh, 
on the tips of your fingers. So what would be a typical day in the life of a controller? Just one day. Oh, goodness. Well, it was never the same. Um, sometimes there would be um, discussions about uh, or meetings that was a wider departmental thing, maybe even a wider BBC thing. Um, there would be looking at the progress of, of shows that are in production. There would be emails to deal with people saying, what do you want? I've got this idea, talking to the team about, I mean, it's a bit different now, but we did have more of a schedule, I think, in those days. Um, you know, how are we going to sort of beat the competition so that our audience, you know, the our, the, the younger viewers come to us rather than uh, other other offerings? Um what's happening in uh, the presentation area. So what are they planning to do and looking at how uh, the presenters there are, are linking between the programs, going and having a chat with people, making sure that you knew um, your presenters, uh, speaking to people if they've got any issues. You know, there might be a compliance issue if something, there'd been a complaint and you had to deal with that. I mean, it was just... There was just there were just so many things. So there was never a typical day. And, you know, I'd look at each day and when I started the job, I'd think, oh, yeah, this week I've got this, this and this. And by the end, I just I just had to kind of be keep constantly looking ahead because sometimes I couldn't even hold in my head what was what was happening that day, which probably sounds a bit mad. It, it was busy. It was very, very busy because you're always looking ahead. You're looking at the viewing figures. You're looking at the budgets. You're looking at, um, you know, perhaps if there are award ceremonies, you've got to write a piece. Um, if there's a briefing session, you've got to think, are you going to run a show reel? Are you going to, what are you going to be saying? What are you looking for? And then, you know, watching the output, making sure that it is up to standard and and, and is the gold standard that the audience and their parents expect. Yes. And also you you were the public face of the channel, which meant mm -hmm. that you, you know, you're a behind the scenes person by instinct. Yeah, I, do, I don't particularly like being in front of uh, the camera or, or whatever. But yeah, occasionally um, and especially once the move happened to Salford, you know, we we there was a wonderful collaboration between all the uh, departments that were there. Six Music, Sports, um uh, five live uh, breakfast and so actually it, it did all we all worked together so you know there were times when they'd say can you come and have a chat on five live about this new series or um, I remember going on breakfast to talk about a series that we'd commissioned called Pablo which was basically all about a little boy who was autistic and it was so important for so many people and um very proud of that series and it was on a very busy um news morning i can't quite remember i think i know but i i, I don't i can't quite remember what the headline is was and i kept getting moved back and i and um i just uh, dan walker who was on the sofa that day said look we will get to you because this is really important for families and i thought well i understand because it's a busy news day but they did. They kept their word and they did the interview right near the end. I was sitting waiting for a long time, but he said, no, this is important. Come on through now. Mm. And um, I just thought that was great because we had support from our wider colleagues. And I think that's something that was really quite special while mm. we were, you know, certainly while I was working up there, because it meant that there was a collaboration and a connectivity between different departments who would probably not normally talk to each other yeah um, and, and also i would say that pursuing uh, your public face the scrutiny with which mm. the channel and by default you were under from government parents uh, I, mean, I suppose really the, res <laughs> the responsibility <laughs> was you you were in a position to influence in brackets, mm -hmm. inverted mm -hmm. commas, an entire generation. Well, that's the responsibility and the privilege. Um, and and I took it very, very seriously. And so it was always about doing the very best for the audience. But also, I think sometimes stepping out of your comfort zone and taking the brave decision. And I do remember when we commissioned a show called Rasta Mouse, there were complaints about it because it was in, it was not in 
obviously RP English. Mm. And uh, a lot of there were a lot of complaints and people said to me, oh, dear, are you going to take it off air? And I said, no, I'm not. And of course, people then became huge fans of it and absolutely loved it. And it was about doing something different mm. and saying, no, we can't just keep doing the same thing. We need to broaden horizons so other, you know, everybody can see themselves or see different things yeah in our output you can't keep doing the same thing yeah and also uh, you've touched upon it I'll, I'll expand it a bit more if i may when i was watching children's tv in the 50s and the 60s admittedly there were two channels and you've got to cope with the great breadth of of influence and input of various platforms and genre but i distinctly remember flower pot men and watch with mother <laughs> and the wooden tops yeah and and captain pugwash and Ivor the engine i mean I, and i got very very excited the other day when i read that fireball xl5 was going to be repeated on talking pictures in june that's one of my husband's favorites yeah XL5. anything jerry anderson oh let me talk yes. about jerry anderson in a minute please <laughs> no no i've risen the subject here's the thing though here's the important thing you must be aware of the fact that what you are producing would live with i know we've covered it generationally but that these shows would live with us forever you know I'm, I'm looking back 60 years and i'm still fondly remembering this stuff well i hope so i really do hope that you know children who have who grew up with the shows that you know, we're on CBeebies, we'll remember them fondly and we'll talk about it, you know, to their children or, or reminisce with their friends. Mm. Um, and it's it is it's about creating something that the audience feel is just for them. I mean, you've mentioned all those other shows, but the one that always sticks in my mind is Play School with the black and white. Here's a house. Here's the door. Windows one, two, three, four. You know, I, and it was in black and white. And I just remember being up, I don't know, about three or four and sitting with my little glass of orange squash and sitting watching that screen. And then those incredible presenters, you know, particularly Brian Kant, you know, would come on. And you felt that those shows were being made. They'd been made just for you. Mm. And that's what it was about, talking directly to the audience. It They weren't for grown-ups. And people did say to me sometimes, well, you know, what's this thing about kids telly? What, what? I said, because it matters. Yeah, And you think about the things that you watched and you loved it, you know, and it's very easy to take the mickey and, and be critical or take, you know, make fun. But actually, when it's done well, you know, people realise how hard it is to do it well and mm. to really engage a very young audience. Because quite frankly, if children don't like it, they'll just walk away. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And also under your tenure... Uh, well, no, while you were in, in position, they, they've got so many distractions. They can reach for the iPad. Sure. Yeah. And 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 stuff like that. I wanna, I've, got, I've got to mention Jerry Anderson mm -hmm. uh, because I, I always felt Jerry Anderson led the way ahead of George Lucas and Star Wars when it came to merchandise. Uh, you, you could get your Fireball XL5 construction kit or your Stingray models. Absolutely. And, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and, and David Claridge with Roland Rat, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the Roland Rat merchandise was a phenomenal industry. And, and Wood's Teletubbies, let's not forget. Sure, absolutely. What a juggernaut of merch that was. So were you in any way at the back of your mind when you were commissioning thinking, oh, there's a merch opportunity here? Or was that not quite as, as to the forefront as I'm leading you to suggest? Um, it was never at the forefront for me because obviously my responsibility at the time was public service and that's where our funding came from. However, I'm not naive and you have to help the budget sometimes. You know, I could not, I did not have enough to commission everything I wanted and fully fund everything. And that is just a reality. So there would be other ways of finding funding. But if I made a commitment from CBeebies, I, you know, I knew that would help people go and get the rest of the funding and obviously things like animation are very very expensive but there are ways of getting other funding whether it's uh, a merchandise deal whether it's distribution so that you can sell the program to other territories so um, at the time it was BBC Worldwide they're now BBC Studios so there was obviously the commercial on there and sometimes shows would partner with them other uh, productions would partner with 
you know, other distributors or finance shows in, in other ways. I think the reality was that it's very easy to say, oh, well, just make some merchandise and that'll be fine. But I think there are two things to remember. One is the show has to be absolutely loved before the merchandise will sell. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is it's a huge challenge. It's so hard to get a new show on the shelf because there are so many evergreens. If you think about Thomas the Tank Engine, Winnie the Pooh, all the Disney stuff, you know, it was really, really hard. So it's a very tough world. And mm. I think the only one that ever probably broke the mould and 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 was, as you say, incredible, a juggernaut, was Teletubbies. I don't know that... I mean, there, there are other ones out there now and perhaps slightly with more of an American influence, but that one was incredible. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people thought, oh, well, it's easy. You just make something and make a few toys and that's it. But the whole point was... Teletubbies and Anne Wood and Andy Davenport and that team knew about children and mm. everything was meticulously researched, everything was beautifully done. And it's not just a question of putting, you know, having a, a checklist, making a show, and then, you know, slapping a yeah. few um, logos on things. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's interesting with the, with the Teletubbies, the fact that they repeated a piece of VT soon after again, again, again mm -hmm. would exclaim the Teletubbies joyfully and they'd play the same VT again. I thought, excuse me. And Catherine said, no, my wife, Catherine said, kids love watching stuff again. What she said, look at you watching reruns of Lovejoy. How many times have you seen this episode? You know, seven. Okay. I know what happens, but you love it, don't you? And also you have to remember that, for a very young child, that might be the first time they've seen mm. that before. So it's it's reinforcing and and helping them understand and seeing it again and learning in mm. in a sort of, I suppose, a very stealthy way. But I, you know, repetition does work, and I think you know it's about children understanding. And if they don't get it the first time, then they might get it again. And so. I think that, you know, there was an element of cynicism about that, but it was absolutely predicated on research and child development. It was spot on. You introduced also, I want to get to the arts because I think this is important. You introduced the, the, the preschoolers to the arts in the form of the, uh, the, the prom, the CBB's prom, and also getting a tie-in with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Can mm -hmm. you tell us about those? Because I find that fascinating. Yeah, again, I, I love theatre and music. Can't sing a note, but I'm in tune, as my sons will testify, mm -hmm. but I love it. Um, and I just, again, felt that, well, why shouldn't the very youngest have access or experience things that the wider BBC audience um, can experience? So... Yes, uh, we we did do uh, the first CBeebies prom at the Albert Hall while I was there, and that was just such a thrill. That was amazing. And again, it was we did it by using our shows, our characters, our presenters to introduce them to music. And we, you know, there've been several, and bless them, you know that they did invite me even after I'd left when they carried on doing them, and it was just fantastic. And the the musicians loved it, and it was lovely because. It was relaxed and so kids could shout and cheer and enjoy and and it was wonderful to sit there and see the whole Albert Hall full of preschoolers and their parents enjoying again classical music and we had um you know just the most brilliant group of musicians who really got into it and 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 you know would were delighted that such young kids were um enjoying it. Yeah. And then we also set up a partnership, and again, this was my wonderful colleague, um, Alison Stewart, who who ran the in-house team. She happened to go to Leeds to see Northern Ballet do a, a show and got chatting, and they were doing a sort of preschool outreach because they wanted kids to really get to know dance quite young. And amazingly, there was a little bit of money left over at the end of the financial year. And they gave it to me. Um, uh, and 
So we said, okay. And I think the, I, I, gosh, we did about five or six with them. I think the first one was possibly the elves and the shoemaker. So again, what we did was it was worked through, it was done age appropriately so that it was accessible. Uh, and we involved one of our presenters from a show plus children with him on the stage explaining the story. And then when we came to the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's both birth and death, I got a call and somebody said, oh, it's um, whoever from BBC Arts. Just thought you might like to come to this meeting. Now, we don't think CBeebies will probably participate in the Shakespeare anniversary, but we just thought it might be nice if you you know come along and see what's happening and just in case there's anything you might be able to do. And I went, OK, right, that's a challenge. So, again talk to fantastic teams that I work with. And so they go off and talk to the Royal Shakespeare Company. And the next thing you know, we've got a version of Midsummer Night's Dream with members of the RSC, including the wonderful Josette Simon doing Titania, who, who was so passionate about it because she felt it was really important for very young kids to do it. And, and I will be honest with you, we sat there at the Everyman in Liverpool and I just thought we'd got audience of, you know, quite young children. And I thought, oh, this could be, this could be, <laughs> this could be great or it could be absolutely awful. Because we did, we we had the story being told again, sort of in the background by some of our, um, you know, presenters and, and characters. But we did decide to keep the Shakespearean language. And I will never forget then, you know, that everybody was enjoying it because they could understand what people like Justin Fletcher were, were saying and, and evening character as one of the mechanicals. And um, and then suddenly one of the um, uh, performers, that the, one of the actors from the, the RSC started talking Shakespearean language. And all these kids leant forward. Wow. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, they're going to go with it. And they loved it. And then you'd get letters from parents saying, oh, my son has been walking around the house saying he's William Shakespeare. My daughter was saying the words um, of Titania. And it was just brilliant. And they've done several more since. And I think they're, they're still um, they're working with the globe now as well. So I'm just so pleased that that's carrying on. And it was always about for me. And I always believe passionately, you know, people say, oh, Shakespeare, I don't understand it. Well, it's meant to be performed. It's not meant to be poured mm. over a, in a book, in a mm. classroom, really. So I was so pleased. And yeah, all of those things, ballet, classical music. Um, I mean, obviously, we've got the fun stuff as well in terms of all more modern or more contemporary stuff, but, you know, and, and more modern music. But how brilliant for children to be able to hear an orchestra mm. play live. How yeah. brilliant to hear Shakespeare's words spoken by wonderful, wonderful actors. And isn't that what it's all about? Getting those letters saying, my son's wandering around the house pretending yeah. to be William Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Yes. And even more worthwhile are the letters you get when, you know, we did a lot of shows for children with different needs. So we obviously had something special for children with communication difficulties. We had a series called Magic Hands, which was the first series, I think, that signed poetry um, in BSL. And it and, and so obviously and then pa Pablo that I've mentioned for which just happened to be about a, a, a young boy with autism and it was an animation. And then the guy who was the head writer decided he needed to really understand the world of these families. And so he went above and beyond and so spoke to young people um about stories that might work for this show and in the end he mentored about five or six of them all of whom were on the um you know had different uh needs or abilities and yeah. i i don't uh, you know they were on the uh, some point on the the spectrum and so they've all they've become writers and and when we when i went to a screening of one of the first episodes the families of those you know children just said this is so important this really really matters so yeah. again and and then it can be something like swashbuckle I got a wonderful letter which I still remember to this day from a father who said again his son was autistic but swashbuckle because of the salute and the song 
it was a time where they could actually do that together. And it was an incredibly special father-son moment, which I thought was really wonderful. Terrific. Really uh, the fact that you expanded that yeah. so broadly yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, uh, growing up, I remember Vision On mm-hmm. with Pat Kiesel and Tony Hart, yeah. which is uh, ostensibly aimed towards uh, the deaf community. But that was the, that, you know, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but that was the, really the only dip into the water, wasn't it? Into, the, into I, those yeah, areas. I, I don't think there have been many since. But, you know, you it, it's everything. You just have to keep pushing. And I, I hope I did a little bit, but then things have to happen and I hope other people will pick up the baton and carry on. Mm. But, you know, then you think about Rose Ailing Ellis on Strictly and that incredible performance and the silence and what a moment that was. Mm. And now, you know, she has push things even further forward and has been on the stage recently in the West End. And I just, you know, I just did what I could at the time. And let's just hope that other people will evolve things and move things forward and and do more and make it broader and that all abilities and um, experiences can be reflected. Yeah, for sure. You've, the programmes you commissioned, it was a broad a broad spectrum of shows, quiz shows, uh, physical game shows, mm-hmm. dramas, and comedies. Yeah. And so, deep down, do you have a favourite genre? I, it's really, I, it's almost impossible to say because I think it was always about what each show did. So, in terms of a favourite genre, um, it's hard to sort of stray, I suppose, from personal taste. So, but when it comes to CBeebies, I think what you have to remember as a controller, it's not about what you like, it's about what's right for the audience. I mean, Mm. yes, you have to, I would say I loved every show I commissioned in some form or other. Um, I guess if I'm honest, I think the shows that spoke to those in perhaps... Um, different communities and and the fact that we managed to reach more children, that means a lot Mm. and opening up the world. Um, So I think that there isn't a favourite genre for me. Um, I'm just really, really pleased that different shows touched different people in different ways and, and helped people. Um, so I suppose, yeah, I'm I'm incredibly proud of the what we call, you know, ch- shows for for children with different needs. I'm incredibly mm. proud of all the arts um, because I think we made it accessible and normal and not highbrow. And I think that's really important to remember that you know the arts are for everybody. Really yes. feel strongly about that. Not highbrow. Um, that's good. And I just think. Um, yeah, there was a, there was something that we did when um, we were we were always thinking about what do we do on Remembrance Day, and in a sense we sort of avoided it because how do you explain Remembrance Day to preschoolers? But then what happened was somebody came again. One of my mar- wonderful team members came and said, "There's there's this idea of creating an animation for the two minute silence." And the long, I I won't go into great detail, but basically we created something called Poppies. And it's sort of in animation and music in a beautiful watercolour treatment showed, I guess, yeah, the the horror of war, but then things coming out the other side. Mm. And it was done through flowers and animals and... It was then picked up and used by, you know, teachers in nurseries and and, uh, became a resource, if you like. And I'm incredibly proud of that. I think tackling not one genre, but tackling things and making brave decisions. And I think I think between us, all of those who worked with me, we made some big and brave decisions. And and I think I hope has made it easier for those who come later to carry on and do more. So Big sorry, I haven't. I've 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 not answered the, the the question with a straight answer. But 
no, it's I, about finding you know something in everything that mm. that resonates with the audience, and that that was always what it was about for me. Yeah, it's those big and brave decisions yeah. because as a controller, yeah. if you want to hang on to your job, it's very easy to say no to most things, isn't it? Because saying as soon no as you is the say yes. Saying yes to something and then thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I done? I mean, I will be honest, when I, I uh, the Topsy and Tim Commission, I do remember saying, yep, we're going to go with to make the money work and to sort of uh, so that they could, um, you know, it's about if you make more, everything is more cost effective, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I commissioned 60 episodes. And I'm not joking. I, I said, yep, fine, let's do it. Signed it all off. And then that night, I literally didn't sleep. I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it was a big success. And credit to the company that made that because they did a fantastic job. And, yeah, I'm still. What you're presenting, that. which I find fascinating, and I think my listener will find fascinating, is the human side of being a controller. The yeah. fact that you do big sit up in bed worrying. Well, also, I felt. A real responsibility because it was for such a young audience and because you can't just assume you know what they think and you have to really go and spend time with them you have to know what their parents are thinking you have to know yes. what's happening in the world and the world can be quite a strange and challenging place and a scary place at times but i think the duty we have is to be honest with them um yeah. and i think that's really really important i mean obviously in in the older age group you've got you know, ways of talking to the older age group, but you've got to find a way. And it's really hard to not, you can't patronize, you can't dumb down. You've got to be honest with children, but equally, you've got to find a way to communicate with them that's appropriate and sensitive. You yes. Know, if, if the subjects are difficult. Yes. Because there's so many hats you've got to wear, so many aspects <laughs> of everything you've got to be across as a controller, particularly of the channel you were in charge of. So let's spin back right to the beginning. You were growing up in Sheffield. Were you watching children's TV and thinking, oh, I don't know, I fancy a career in television? Well, yeah, I was born in Sheffield. Then we moved to Birmingham. Then I, I spent most of my childhood actually growing up in Derby. So I was quite a Midlands girl, if you like. And the answer to your question is, yes, I watched loads of telly. I watched everything. Jack and Ori, Blue Peter, Grange Hill, Magpie. I watched both channels. I watched, you know, as you say, there were only two channels at the time. Yeah, I watched loads, you know, in, in animation. And the, the one person for me who was a fantastic role model was Valerie Singleton on Blue ah. Peter. I thought she was wonderful. I thought she was calm. I thought she was um, in control and sort of commanding, but but with a warmth. And I absolutely thought, you know, as a, and again, there weren't that many women on television. So I thought that was really important. So she was my absolute role model. And I, I guess, I don't know, I went to university and I thought maybe I'd you know, I would become a teacher. And then what happened was um, there were interviews for people to become studio managers at the BBC. And I, to be honest, I didn't know what that involved. But basically, it was the technical <laughs> side. of It was running the programmes and, 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 and in radio. And I started my career after a couple of... I did actually apply twice and then got through. And I ended up starting my career at Bush House. And I quite like being, and, I, and at university, I've done a lot of behind the scenes, you know, assistant stage managing. I'm not, I'm not um, in front of the camera person. So I didn't, I uh, didn't want to be in front of the camera, but I did like, you know, putting a, pr a production together, if you like. Um, and I like people and um, I like being part of the audience as well. I um, mean, you know, I still love theatre to this day, you know, and, and go regularly or to, to see films. So I guess uh, I didn't plan it, but I started in radio. Then I went across and worked in television presentation where I did children's presentation with Andy Peters and Ed the Duck, Simon Parkin. And, you know, and then I applied to BBC Children's for at the time they had um, what they called an attachment. And you could go to another department for six months and learn the skills. And I think really once I went that that was it. I just loved it. So I learned, you know, I how to go and shoot single camera so go and shoot short films to studio direct which was brilliant loved directing in the studio um 
where I met your lovely wife, Catherine, because she used to vision mix with me. And I was a, probably not the greatest director in the world, but she was marvellous and so <laughs> made it all look lovely. Um, <laughs> so I guess I've all, yeah, I suppose I've always loved film, television, theatre from a very mm. young age. So yeah, I, I, had, I didn't have a, a plan, but opportunities arose. And I think I, worked hard and took opportunities when they arose and I didn't always get through first time sometimes I had to apply for things twice or go and do something else and then move to it slightly sideways but mm. I I will be honest that the controller job was always my dream job and I did apply for that and I didn't get it the first time around and then a few years later it came up again and that's when I just thought I really really want this yeah and then I do remember thinking I was so nervous I could hardly put one foot in front of the other, never mind speak. But somehow I must have impressed upon them that I felt I knew where to take the channel next. Mm. And yeah, that was that was a very proud moment. That wonderful achievement. Yes. And do you think you've got two sons? Do you think being a mum of two sons uh, is important or was it in any way influential when you achieve that particular role? I think being a parent is helpful, definitely, um, because obviously you understand what it's like to be a parent, the challenges and how helpful it is when you've got something that's, I think, good quality and can help them grow. And let's be honest, at times you need to sit down for a moment and if somebody's engaging them with something that you don't feel guilty about, that fantastic mm. parenting is the hardest job in the world i don't think it's absolutely essential i know a lot of people who work in the business who don't have children and they are brilliant brilliant program makers absolutely brilliant because they have the ability to see things through a child's eye so i think it's helpful i think it's good experience because obviously you know what other parents go through your you know there's you always go to sort of you meet other parents, you know what mm. it's like when your child has a tantrum in the supermarket. So I think it's helpful, but not absolutely essential. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In your tenure, your channel won how many BAFTA awards as the channel of the year? Uh, four, five. Yeah, exactly, which is a testament to your mm. terrific achievements and the way you kind of – I was – I would contend you've dragged you, you you dragged the channel into the modern era, which is a tremendous with a lot of help from very brilliant, talented people. And as I say, the Channel of the Year award was always a, a team thing, and I couldn't have done it without everybody else who supported me. But I think because I'm quite a passionate person, so I hope that what happened was they kind of believed in what I could see. Yeah. Um, I hesitate to use the word vision, but I did know what I wanted and, and became, I suppose, bolder as the years went on and things kind of worked. And, yeah, there were some challenges along the way and there were complaints and you have to deal with that. But mostly, yeah, I think everybody was really proud to work for CBeebies or make programmes for them. And, yeah. you know, and that includes all the people who help you make the money work, people who schedule, um, people who do the contracts you know, the business affairs, you know, there are so many people that don't probably get any credit. But, oh, my goodness, I just, you know, so grateful to all of those people, a lot of whom I'm still in touch with. Yeah. Who helped me. You know, I would I'm I'm not very good at taking no for an answer. So I say, how do we do this and how can I make this work? And they go, well, OK, well, because you could, you know, you, you can't move money about willy nilly. You know, you've got to it's got to be done. And there are um rules and regulations and you've got to do it the right way mm. and oh, some of them were so brilliantly creative and could could make things work and yeah couldn't have done it without them but on the subject of being brilliantly creative when you left the bbc you um you took on the role of script editing clangers but mm. also roots and fruits more lately yeah. roots and fruits you're the script editor of roots and fruits which i've it is fantastic. It's a great title and a lovely series. How it did that is. come about? Um, well, the company who makes it are based in Edinburgh, uh, Plum Films, and they'd um, done a show for me called Teacup Travels some years previously. And I was up in Edinburgh because my son was performing in a show there. And I met up with Mickey, who runs the company, 
and we talked about maybe we could do something together because now I was sort of a, a freelance person and um he showed me this one page sort of outline for something called roots and fruits and I thought oh that, that's fun and I mean obviously it takes a long time and you, you, you know it had to be pitched in and, and it was a bit strange being on the other side because it's you know it's a show that's on CBB so but what was lovely was that working with people that had worked with me at CBB's and the support it got and yes it went out last year so it's effectively uh, fruit and veg doing a variety show in a theatre what's not to love <laughs> so the audience get to know about the fruit and vegetables some facts about it 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 kind of introduces them as characters so that then they know uh what they are when they're in the supermarket and then uh there's a backstage interview with kiwi the roving reporter and um and then there's a performance and it could be a variety act whether it's a strong uh you know a weightlifting thing that was pumpkin um banana singing opera um strawberry singing um a sort of gospel number about see the seeds because strawberries have their seeds on the outside so in a way it's just delightfully entertaining but it's also quite educational in a very unusual way so yeah that that was great um i also did another series which I'm very proud of called the world according to grandpa for milkshake which um has the wonderful uh uh Don Warrington in um, the lead role. And basically it's about a grandpa who tells tall, the kids ask a question, the grandfather tells a tall, fantastical story. And then there is a puppet rabbit, Halifax, who actually explains the reality behind the question. So the kids get a great story, but also the truth, as it were, the facts. Um, so why is the sky blue or whatever? So, so yeah, I, I'm, I love working with people who share the same values and just want to do the best for the audience. So, yeah. yeah. So you're still as busy as ever. And you still find time to wander along to, is it still Highbury? Is it still called Highbury? <laughs> well, I always, always think of it as Highbury, but yeah, it's the Emirates Stadium. The Emirates yes, Stadium, I, yes. I have a season ticket and my eldest son and I do go to, his, well, I, I'm able to go to pretty much all home matches now. Um, he is older and working now, so it doesn't always go to all of them. But yeah, we, we go. Um, it's a strange one, isn't it? Um, my my dad was from the south, a Londoner. My mum was from the north, sort of Liverpool area. And I guess I went with probably the team that my dad um, mm. supported. But also it was when Sam was younger. He he hadn't, he sort of got into football and it was about, well, everybody was going, well, who do you support? Which team do you support? And yeah, we went with Arsenal. And also at the time, it was fun. To, you know, it was Arsenal were doing really, really well. But also, I think because my dad told stories about players he'd remembered. And, you know, and so, yes, um, Sam was about eight. And um, we start, we did used to go occasionally in the family enclosure. And then gradually we had our name on the list. And we now have season tickets and we sit together. And um, the highs and lows of uh, being a football supporter. But yes, do. absolutely. I, uh, I'm really passionate about it. And I love what Mikel Arteta is doing, how he's rebuilt the team. And it's been, a, it's been a fantastic season. And I don't know quite how it's going to end. And I suspect we're, you know, it's going to be a tall order. But, you know, the fact that nobody gave us a chance of top four and we've already guaranteed second place with three matches to go is amazing. We've been unlucky with the injuries, unfortunately, at a, a bad time. But some of the some of the um performances this season, it's a bit it's a bit like watching, you know, theatre or ballet. You you know roughly what the plot is, but you don't know how it's going to end. But some of the some of the play is like watching ballet because it's so beautiful and i'm sure that's why it's called a beautiful game and i know not everybody gets it but i love it that's one of the most articulate descriptions of of football i've ever heard in my life to be honest <laughs> you've summed it up beautifully it was well i yeah i and i am really really passionate about it and when i'm there i cannot think about anything else i am so in the moment yeah um work-wise what's next in the diary I'm waiting on a couple of projects, if I'm honest, and I can't say um, I'm, you know, um, there's a project I've been working with a company on for a couple of years and it's very, very close to getting a commission. But again, unfortunately, it's not 
quite at the point where I can say. But again, it's a beautiful preschool offering based on a book. Um, so I think it will be loved by the audience. And again, we're trying to sort of do something a little bit different with it. Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, obviously we hope for a second series of Roots and Fruits. So we're waiting on that. Um, and then people get in touch to see if I can help them with projects and develop them. So I'm open to things, but I'm also quite enjoying having a bit more time to do yeah. things. I quite like gardening. I'm not great at it, but I do enjoy my garden, football, theatre, film and being around for my sons who are growing up. But, you know, you never stop being a parent and mm. I'm interested to see where their lives take them and I just want to be there to support them and um you know being able to go out for the day with my husband if the the mood so takes us indeed but I may drag him away from your company to sit him down in the same room and we will watch Fireball XL5 together oh I think you should yes he'd love that <laughs> but he's 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 a very passionate photographer so we had a lovely day um a few weeks ago at, at uh Wisley Gardens where he took some amazing photographs and I just enjoyed wandering around looking at the flowers and yeah it was a in spite of the weather at the moment it was a very sunny day that day and we had yeah. a had a lovely time so I think having a slightly different balance in my life where I am not literally going from one meeting to another or or every day is packed just having a bit more breathing space um yeah is nice but I still enjoy I still enjoy the work and I still enjoy helping to create what I feel is quality content for the youngest viewer. As I say, sure. I will never stop saying the very young deserve the very best. And I think, you know, if we focused a bit more on children when they're very, very young, that might be quite a good thing. Well, if I may say, I think you provided the very best in those seven years in which you were the controller of CBBs. I think it's I fantastic. Well, I'm I'm proud of it. I loved it. I really loved the job. I loved all the people I worked with. And I loved watching the audience respond to the shows that we made. I think that was the biggest thrill of all. We have been listening to the incredible, the multi-skilled and the utterly fascinating talent that is Kay Benbow. Thank you, Kay. Thanks, Colin.